Beautiful. So every week we've been in this series called Back to the Garden. We've had somebody create um, a uh, depiction of the verses that we're going over. And man, this one, I love this one. I love the, I see all those leaves and I'm like, dude, I would look like such a second grader if I tried to draw that. Um, it's awesome. I'm, I'm excited that everybody's here today. And I'll be honest, the reason is, or part of the reason, we're excited that everybody's here every Sunday. And I'm, I'm continually impressed by the fact that so many of you, who, especially you're, you're young, you don't have to go to church, but you get up and you go to church anyways. That's phenomenal. Um, but in addition to that, uh, <clears throat> we're in part four of a four-part series on sin. And if there was like a church handbook for how to kill church attendance, um, this would be it. But you showed up anyways. And I'm so thankful for those of you who have been tracking with us. And the reason why we wanted to go through this is because um, what we believe fundamentally and foundationally is that Jesus um, has this declaration. He said, I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. That is both in a salvific sense and a temporal sense on planet Earth. But the problem is, and the thing that competes for us really experiencing life that Jesus meant for it to be experienced, is the sin that we engage with. And the problem, again, and we said this every week, is that the church has just generally done a poor job at talking about this in our life. And this is the essence of what most of us have learned about sin as it relates to the church. Number one. Don't do it. Good luck, right? Number two, you're going to do it. Dang it, I already sinned and messed up, right? Number three, so pray to Jesus that you do it less. And that's about it, right? Don't do it. You're going to do it. Pray that you do it less. And so what we've been doing in this series is if sin is an iceberg, most of what we look at is the above the surface stuff. But this series has said what's below the surface, What's below the surface? The things that we do, the sin that we do, we said this week, the sin that we do is not actually the thing. The things that we do are a means to an end, that we're actually doing this to acquire something, to accomplish something, to feel something, to be something. So simply say, to say remove it isn't helpful because if we don't understand the roots of it, it will simply grow back perhaps just in a different form, which we've all experienced. And so I want to go over a brief where we've been in this series, but not just because, you know, I want to restate the things that we've already said, but because actually the progression of the series has left kind of a problem that we're going to address today. Week one, we talked about this idea, this idea that in the garden there was a tree of life and a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of, of life is how life was supposed to be meant, how life was supposed to be lived uh, in harmony with one another, oneness with God but how we continually look for life by eating of the tree and the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, we continually would rather experience sin for ourselves than trust God. And so we ask this question. If I continually eat from this tree, whatever the area of the department, compartment of sin is, if I continually eat from this tree, will it ever actually satisfy me? Can it deliver on the promise that it makes? Week two was similar but a little bit different because what we said is the mechanism of sin, the way that, that, that the enemy can try to deceive us and, and be crafty about it, is he will minimize the cost and maximize the value. But how sin actually does the opposite. At the beginning, it promises to cost nothing and give everything, but by the end of it, it, co- it actually costs everything and gives us nothing. And so we said this, what's the actual cost? What's the actual cost? If I were to continue to do the things that I'm doing, and they never actually, by the way, stay static, it's almost always a progression because we get desensitized to it. So if I continue on this, this road, what, what's the actual cost? And the week three is, so when we actually do sin, how do we respond? Let's take a really good, deep look and say, how do we respond? We respond t- typically by hiding it from other people or covering it up from other people and hiding from God and then shifting blame when we get caught. What we ought to do is the opposite. 
It's to expose ourselves. And so if you're here and you've been tracking every week, um, here's the problem with the series so far. This is a lot of information. This is a lot of information about the underworkings, the underneath the surface, what happens at kind of the more core level with our sin. But the problem is, is that information never creates or doesn't solely create transformation. Information doesn't solely create transformation, right? Most of us know how to get in shape. We know the information. We know consistent deposits of fitness, consistent deposits of healthy eating, healthy living, right? But some of you, like, it hasn't been a consistent deposit, and all of a sudden you're like, dude, spring break's in a week? I'm eating tuna fish and leaves, right? Like, that's it. And I'm working out nonstop. Then you're just going to, like, cardio, but, like, sprint cardio, fast twitch muscles, right? You're like, oh, I know how to get yoked quick, right? Like, like we know that that's not actually how real fitness is gained. We have the information, but simply the information doesn't create transformation. The same thing. Like, I know that the healthiest thing for me is not to engage with a delicious carbohydrate, that is perfectly fried in a, in a crisp way and loaded with sodium and trans fats that I call Cape Cod potato chips. Or in my better moments, especially on the golf course, Cool Ranch Doritos, because I'm seven. Now, we know that, but isn't this true? Transformation happens when information meets the motivation. And the motivation specifically of our affections and our desires. That transformation happens, not simply as we have the information. The information is helpful, but the information is, is, is transformative once we actually take that information and it collides with our heart's affections and desires. Then transformation happens. And so today, I want to talk about how we can not just know more about our sin and just be super well-informed sinners that have no more a level of holiness in our lives, but instead, we can actually live like Jesus, live towards holiness. Now, the starting point for this is, again, in Genesis 3. We're going to jump off of that from our discussion today. And if you haven't been tracking, then let me just kind of give you the cliff notes on what's happened so far in the story. God creates. God puts man in the garden. God says, in this garden, any fruit, any tree, eat whatever you want. Two trees specific, tree of life, good and evil. Eat from the tree of life, not from the tree of good and evil, or the knowledge of good and evil. They say, okay. Um, serpent comes along, says, hey, you should eat from this tree. Long story short, Eve says, I'm in. Even shorter story, Adam says, I'm in. They both eat from the tree. Then God comes down. They both try to hide from God. They try to cover up their shame because they realize, uh-oh, I'm naked. Um, and God comes down and starts to talk to them as they're trying to hide from him. Now, we're going to pick up the story in the middle of this. And what I think we're going to find, again, is this is a very, very human interaction that happens. So if you've got your Bible, you can open up to Genesis chapter 3 as we launch in. So Genesis 3, starting about halfway through verse 11. And he, being God, said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? So the man said, classic dude, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And all the wives said, classic, right? 
It's not my fault the house is messy. Boy, you should see these kids that you left me with. The weight of conviction. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it you've done? She said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, and he begins to say, this is, what the, this is what's going to happen with the serpent. Now, I kind of want to pause here for a second. Because, again, a lot of times when we read the Bible, it's just like a, um, it's something that we read and say, okay, this happened, that happened, and that happened. But I think actually in this moment, I, I kind of want to humanize this for us and, and place ourselves to say, what would I feel in this moment? Because we've probably all been at this particular point where you have done something wrong, you know you've been caught, and now we're simply waiting for the consequences, right? You know you shouldn't have done it, and you know, mom and dad saw, or the boss found out, or the professor found out, or your husband found out, or your wife found out, or you know, whoever it is found out, and now, now all of a sudden you know that they know, and they know that you know, and you're waiting to say, what's going to happen next? And that is one of the most tension-filled moments. When I was little, uh, we used to uh, play this game. When I was little, I was like probably 11 or 12 years old. And it would rain outside. And we used to, we used to love playing all things sports outside. But when it, was rain, you can't, when it was raining, you can't do that. And we just, I just, maybe we were too young to have like a Nintendo or something like that. And so we would go to my house and we would play on your knees tackle football. On your knees tackle football. Now, if you play tackle football, you know when your knee touches the ground, you're actually down, right? So how you play on your knees tackle football is you play football, but you're on your knees. Wow. Right? But you're down when your shoulder or your elbow or your shoulder hits the ground. In other words, it's just a brawl. That's like all this really is. It's a brawl with a ball. That's, that, that's, if you were to summarize this, right? And if you want to go home, if, if you're in a fraternity, you should do this today. This is your sermon application, all right? Just get all your dudes together and be like, dudes, we're playing on your knees tackle football today. It's going down. All right. So, I mean, and, it, and it, we would throw bows and it would get, you know, physical and violent. And at times things would get broken. Bones would get broken. Uh, things happen. We'll just say, well, this one particular day we were playing and my parents had this nice, like, platter. And you know how, you know how parents are. I'm a parent now, so I, I, maybe I own this a little bit, but, like, they had this platter, and it's, like, the sacred platter in the house. And it was not, like, an antique. It was nothing significant about this house, but, or this platter. But I remember we had this platter on this thing in our living room, which in hindsight, like, that's just a dumb idea. But this one day, we were playing tackle football on your knees. Somebody hit the whole thing. The whole thing started to go. It was on the carpet, and so it didn't shatter, but the, the handle on this platter broke off. Well, I am really good at trying to get away with bad stuff. So I thought, fellas, let's get some, some super glue and super glue it on. And we did. And it worked until my birthday. And we're all, I, was, I, was, I was having a baseball party that year, and we had some friends over, and we were about to go to the baseball field. And my dad, I remember, I'll never forget, we were, we were getting in the, in the Bronco. It's part of where my Bronco affections and, and desires come from. We used to have this white 89 Eddie Bauer Ford Bronco. If anybody remembers OJ, same thing. Year, make, model, color. We call it the OJ Mobile, post-OJ. And we were getting in this thing. And I never, my, my dad comes out. And you know how, like, Parents, you get this. Kids, you get, we all get this, right? They come out, and it's like, he has that look like, and I'm like, I don't know what's going down, but it's going down. And I remember I looked at him, and he goes, you have something you want to tell me about the platter? Now, I am a very rational person. 
To which I obviously said no. Because you said, do you have something you want to tell me? There's no part of me that wants to tell you about this, right? Do I have some, something to tell you? Of course. But do I want to tell you? Absolutely not. So I said no. He said, so you don't know why the platter and his handle was broken. And, I was, and he just could see that look on my face. You know, the whole time I'm just like, and you're caught. You know, you know you're caught because my sister wouldn't, she was good. Um, and I knew, I knew it was me, and he knew it was me. And he looks at me, and he goes, you're lucky it's your birthday. We'll talk about this after. I'm like, oh, can we just talk about it now? You know, like this internal tension, like I just want to throw up pops. Like can we just, just let me know what the consequence is now? And I feel like, you know, we've all been in that moment in that space where we just, we have done something wrong. We know a consequence is coming. And so Adam and Eve, they're sitting there with God in the garden. They just said it's the serpent. And the God's talking to the serpent. And they're trying to sit there and probably think, like, what's the consequence? What's the consequence? What's the consequence for us? And so God says, well, let me start with the serpent for a second. He says, cursed are you above all the livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. You will eat dust all the days of your life. Then he transitions here. So if that's the one that's specific kind of serpent, what's fascinating is this, is this is honestly one of the most important verses in all of the Bible. And I don't mean that in like a, oh, this is one of my favorite verses. I mean, this is one of the most important foundational verses in all of Scripture. It's called the Proto-Evangelium. And here's what it says. He says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, talking to the serpent, between your offspring and hers. Now let me, I'm going I'm to unpack why this is such an important verse. He says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Now again, the serpent here isn't just like, oh, it's a cool snake. It's like it's a, this, this is a representation of the enemy of Satan, of evil, of the devil. Like, it, like, like this is the understanding of the presence and he says, so I'm going to put a sense of enmity. Now, enmity, we just don't really use that word very often. It's like, I can't remember the last time I was like, unless you're writing a paper and you're like, I don't have anything to say animosity. So I'm going to say, you know, thesaurus, enmity. Okay, good, good for an English class. But enmity is not just a sense of distance or anger. Interestingly, and we get this because of the context of what's happening in our world right now, this is the level of hatred between two warring opposing countries. He says there is going to be a level of opposition between you. Between you and the serpent, between your offspring and her offspring. Her offspring, which is interesting because the Hebrew word for offspring is seed. Seed can be singular or plural. It's kind of like you and you which is you-specific, royal you, which in the South we just call y'all. And so he says, between you and, as in Satan, and the potential singular or plural. And let me tell you why that that's big, because the context defines the singular or the plural version of this. And the very next statement he says, is he says, and he, in other words, singular, now, I know some of you are like, man, I'm so glad I showed up for a grammar lesson this morning. Here's what that's big. This is the first prophecy of Jesus. Now, number one, 
It's the seed of a woman, not a seed of a man. Almost every time a seed, a lineage is referred to, it's referred to as the seed of the father. You can probably figure out why. But he says that this is going to be from a woman. In other words, this was the first illusion, kind of, kind of forged, not illusion, but foreshadowing of what would come of the virgin birth. That it was going to come from a woman, this, this, this seed, this line, this person. And he, singular, refers to the seed. There's going to come someone through your line, through your lineage, through your personhood that is going to do something, what is he going to do? He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Talking to the serpent. In other words, the way that a serpent crawling on the ground would attack a person, the most susceptible place is behind him on the ground as the person comes into the domain or the territory of a snake and he bites him. The way to kill a snake, by stepping on its head. Any country folk can tell you that, right? Some of you are like, I never knew that. Don't just try to like chop it in half. It's going to be bad news. Here's what he's saying. Satan will be defeated, but it will not come without a cost. That Satan will be crushed, that there will be victory, that the serpent will be defeated. But in this defeat, the defeat will come as he, the seed, who we would know as Jesus, will also be hurt. In other words, since the foundation of Genesis, since before the declaration of the consequence, God said, I want you to know, I want you to know that this is my plan, that you will be delivered from the power of the enemy, but it will come at an incredible cost. In other words, like Isaiah said, that by his wounds, by his wounds, we are healed. Now, again, you got to see this in the sequence. Because they're sitting there waiting, and they're saying, Well, what's our consequence? And this is massive for any of us who we lived and lived and were raised in a context where we felt like God was just this mad God. God was just this angry God. I don't know how your view of God was when you were, you know, kind of growing up or maybe as an adult and it informs that all the time, which is why I think our kids and families ministry is so vital because they are creating a first impression of God that will leave a lasting impression on the he- on, of their heavenly father on the hearts of a child for the rest of their life. All of us view God and it was formed in probably the first 10 years of life. But here's what, here's what many of our view of God is. God's mad because you messed up and he's waiting in the clouds to snipe you with the lightning bolt. He's like, oh, oh, I see they're about to mess up. They're about to mess up. Bam, judgment, right? Check this out. God pronounced delivery from the curse. God pronounced delivery from the curse before he delivered the consequence of the curse. God was more concerned with how we were going to regain a relationship with him, gain the sense of communion and unity with him before he delivered and said, now here is the consequence of what's going to happen. In other words, God is more concerned with gaining restoration and reconciliation than he is with the consequence of our sin. You know what that means? This whole time that you felt like God was maybe mad at you, upset with you, angry with you, the reality is he loves you. Before he said, here's the consequence, he said, here's the rescue. 
And what we would come to find out, what we would know is that the way this would happen is that functionally, the functional aspect of it is that we would come to the realization that we, in fact, are sinners, that we, in fact, have fallen short of the glory of God, and that it's not about being good. It's not about me reigning in victory over my sin, but me trusting in the one who has already reigned victoriously over my sin. It's not about me being a good person. It's me trusting that God did die, and when he died, he took on the sin, he took on the shame. That because of my sinful nature, just like if I got pulled over for, for a speeding ticket and I couldn't pay that fine, I would never be able to pay that fine, let's say. God knew that, saw that, never expected me to. And he did. And that was his plan from the foundation of the earth. Before the consequence was delivered, salvation was proclaimed. And at this point, it would be very reasonable for someone to say, okay, well, if that's the case, then why are we doing this series on sin? Right? Why, why, what's the point of morality if it's not about me being good? If, if basically what you're saying is it's not about me attending church, and it's not about me going to enough prayer meetings, and it's not about me serving, and it's not about me giving, then, then what is it? Why would God give all those laws in the Old Testament especially? It's a beautiful question. Here's why. We as people need objectivity to help us draw clear delineations. If that was a weird transition into a whole different realm of thought and language, I apologize. But here's, here's what that means. When we think about being good, what we oftentimes think about is a subjective level of good. But the subjectivity of good is only subjective to what you contrast it to. And without some type of an objective standard, we will subjectively define good compared to one another. In other words, you're better than me. I'm better than you. Maybe uh, we look at somebody like, you know, uh, the Varans, right? They're just better than everybody. Or the Collies, like, they're just better than everybody, right? Like, especially like William and Hope. They're like, oh, I mean, uh, William and Julie, like, they're good. But there's like Hope and Jane. It's like, dude, they are holy, you know? And I'm like, man, if they're the state, then subjectively I'm maybe doomed, but maybe they would feel like they're good. But here's the point, is that there had to be some version or some variation that said objectively this is the standard because subjectively we'll convince ourselves that we're good. But when I look at that standard, I cannot say that I'm good because I am not perfect compared to that. I might be better than you, but this is the objective standard that I woefully fall short of. In other words, it's this. The purpose of the law was never to make us feel bad. It was to help us come to the realization that we are already bad. Because if I don't realize that, I will never realize that I need a Savior because I'll always convince myself that I am good enough for God. Because the subjectivity and my self-bias will drive me in that direction. In other words, it was for the need of the awareness of a Savior and I want to pause one more time in this and say, at this point, uh, if you're here and you're like, okay, I remember where we started this sermon. Uh, and honestly, that's interesting. But I don't know how that makes me sin less. Well, there's two points of application of this that I want to propose. 
Number one. Number one is the salvific application. And by that I mean, perhaps you have never actually trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And what I mean by that is this. Not that you don't know about Jesus. Not that you don't culturally agree about Jesus. But what we have the tendency to do, especially in the South, is have this kind of cultural deference towards God, but no actually proclamation that you are my Lord and Savior. In other words, if someone were to give us a multiple choice test, we would check Christian because we wouldn't check any of the other boxes. And so by default, we consider ourselves Christians. We never actually came to the point where we say, Jesus, I trust you. I am not good enough. I can't be good enough. I know I'm not good enough. I know to the objective standard I am not good enough. And so I need you to defeat sin for me. And I place my faith, my hope, my trust in you. In other words, perhaps you have thought about God, but you never actually know God. Perhaps you've thought and agreed generally with Jesus, but you've never placed your faith, your hope, your trust in Jesus himself. And maybe it was because you just kind of culturally did. Maybe it was because this is the faith you're parents gave you. Maybe you had some objections and some questions. But here's the first step, is to simply say, yes, Jesus, you are my Lord and Savior. I will not defeat sin on this earth, and I do not want to get to heaven and stand on my own two feet. Because If only God can judge me, the problem is he will. And I am simply just not good enough. And that's okay, because I was never supposed to be. But it's not just this sense of forgiveness. It's actually better than that. That God hasn't just declared in a judicial sense, you're now forgiven. He says, You're not just forgiven. You are. But when you understand what I have done for you, when you place me central and you say you are my Lord and my Savior, you are not just forgiven. You're family. That for the first time ever, baby, you call to God and he's just not a deity, but he is your father who knows you and hears you. And the second one is this. Because, and here's why I say this, the second one, is a lot of you know Jesus. Place your faith, your hope, your trust in Jesus. But you're like, bro, I still am not living that way. We have this thing that we talk about called preaching the gospel to yourself daily. Preaching the gospel to yourself daily. Remembering what Jesus has done for us daily. And here's why that's important. And here's why that's the key is because when I get, and this is so easy to lose sight of because we overvalue our holiness and undervalue God's holiness, but the more I understand, God, I have rebelled against you. I know the good that I ought to do and I didn't do it and I've sinned. And God, I know that I can't get in the right relationship with you. And God, I know that I can't even understand you. I can't grasp you, God. Anything that I can do to understand you or grasp you is in my own language. And my own language is simply an anthropomorphism of what your language is because you just are. You not are in a particular type of language. So even my best tries to grasp you are just fall woefully short. But God, through Jesus, I get you, I would give everything to go for that. Like when we get 
that it's not just that we get to be happy or good people, but that the prize in and of itself is that we get God. It changes everything. And the more that I realize that daily, the more I begin to live for God. This is how Matthew 13 says this. I'm going to end with a couple parables real quick. Two parables, three verses. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is rattling some stuff off to his disciples. And he says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. In his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. We don't know why he was in that field. We don't know if he was just kicking rocks in that field or if he was digging in that field. He was looking for something. But something happened, and dude discovers, man, there's something here that has so much more value than anything that I have, and I'm going to sell everything that I have. I'm going to leave everything that I have to gain that thing. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. He found one of the great value. He went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Let me tie this whole series together for us. We might be well-informed sinners, but the problem with well-informed sinners is we just know why we sin, but the problem that we ultimately wrestle with is sin looks more attractive than God. And what he's saying here is, man, when I get this treasure that I get, it's not about what I'm leaving. It's not about, man, I just got to try to sin less and try to sin less and try to sin less. And maybe over time, I'll sin less and less and less. Although that might be true, what I actually do is I walk towards Jesus. People always think repentance is difficult. Repentance is excruciating unless you're walking towards something. Because if you're not walking towards something, all you're doing is walking away from something and leading a void of desire. I don't know anybody who has a what, iPhone, what are you on, like 13 now? 17.9 or something like that, right? I don't know who anybody who's like, man, I really want that iPhone 3 back. I like that little button in the middle, you know? It didn't have thumbprint or nothing, but it, I mean, it, it, was, it was slow. But, man, I miss that, right? It's because this is just far better. Whatever your dream car is. You guys know my mind, you know, 1976 Bronco. Although an early 90s Defender Land Rover 110 is making a strong push right now in my heart. And I like my truck. That's great. Truck, you know. But if someone was like, hey, you can drive this Bronco, you can drive this Defender, you can go for this thing, but just, you know, you got to give up your truck. Because you can only drive one car? I'd be like, bro, take it. You know what I mean? Like, I'll, Because I'm walking towards something. And here's the problem for most of us. Is that we're not actually walking towards Jesus. We're more focused, more focused on what we're walking away. But when we realize that we get God, we just say, God, I will run after you. So here's the question. Are we just well-informed sinners? Or is Jesus the object of our affection and our desire. And I know that could be difficult. But to put it in contrast, like I would never say, okay, Jesus, my career is more important than you. My career is only going to last about a, you know, roughly a third to half of my life. 
I would never say, Jesus, security is more important than you. Jesus, my house is more important than you. Jesus, real estate is more important than you. No, like, he dwarfs all of that stuff. It's kind of like I had a buddy who used to tell this story of when he was little. He was older than his sisters, and his sister used to have a dollar, and he'd have a couple pennies. And he'd say, look, you should take these pennies. They're shiny. They're nice. They're new. There's four of them. She used to have this paper doll. She's like, what am I going to do with this paper thing? You got four. I got one. Here you go. Here's all I'm saying. Until we realize the value that we have in Jesus and that he is a treasure worth everything, we'll continue to trade our dollar for pennies. And the process of chasing after Jesus is a daily one. So I don't want to leave you without a clear what to do next. Any of you know we started the year as a, this, as, as a 22 days in the Word because we really want you to pursue Jesus, not be dependent on the institution of church to follow Jesus. We walk through the Gospel of John together. So starting tomorrow morning, we're launching a brand new one, going through the book of 1 Corinthians together. 1 Corinthians is an awesome book. It's a crazy book. Corinth is like... L.A. met Las Vegas, and it was just wild. And yet the gospel just infiltrates that space. Because the process of following Jesus, of treasuring Jesus, of finding Jesus, it, it, again, it's a lot like this idea of fitness. Like, it just doesn't happen. Like, all of a sudden, one day, I declare, Jesus, you're it. Though he is it. The world creeps in. And so for us, it's a daily looking, daily finding him in his word. The last day of the 22-day uh, challenge, 22 days in the word, um, we sent out this question, how has this impacted you? I mean, there was just so many cool responses of people who said, it has impacted me. As I've just seen God in his word, experienced him daily, my faith has grown like I have never experienced before. So if you want to do that, it's everybody. In fact, we're going to keep the other text chain alive and just add this to it. You can text, and you can text it right now. DCC tally to 9400. And we're just going to send you a, a chapter every day. Let me tell you something, college students. It's also going to be texted out during spring break. And y'all need it. I know. <laughs> so how we're going to end this whole thing, this whole series together. That we know that we can understand that sin is unfulfilling, that we know that we can understand there's a high cost, that we know that we can try to hide. Jesus becomes central in the desire when information meets our affection, our lives are transformed, and our hearts long for our Savior. And so it's simply to treasure Jesus. We're going to take communion together. Because this is the epicenter. This was Genesis 3 lived out. That in Genesis 3, he declared, God declared, before the consequence, God declared, you are going to crush Satan, but he will wound you. Jesus said, this is my body which is going to be broken for you and my blood which is going to be shed for you. Here's what I want you to experience in these last couple moments together. The overwhelming love of God displayed on the cross. 
And if you're in here and you want to, for the first time, accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And then what I want you to do is with the rest of the church, as we get up, come down, and take communion. You might say, I've done that a ton. That is not significant. Here's what, here's, here's what communion means. In the same way Jesus' body was broken, his blood was shed, as Paul says in Romans 12, in view of God's mercy, what he has done for us, what he's given for us, then our spiritual act of worship, our right act of worship, our proper act of worship, our reasonable act of worship is that we would live lives sacrificed for him. That, that in view of God's mercy, I'm going to present my body, my life as a living offering, a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That my life now says, Jesus, if you would do that for me, I'll do anything for you. My entire life is yours. As we experience the love of God together, broken for us, it compels us to love him, treasure him, honor him, and give everything for him. Because as long as we see sin as a higher value than Jesus, we will continue to pursue it. But I'm telling you, when you get it, When you get it, you give everything for it. Let's pray. God, I ask and I pray that you would help each one of us. That we're all at different places. To not simply walk away as well-informed sinners. But as forgiven sons and daughters. Who see you. And know that nothing in this world compares to you. And it's not that we have to give everything, but we want to give everything because we get you. We gladly leave the lives that we were leading. We gladly shed the sin and the weight that so easily entangles us and we just focus our eyes on you Jesus I pray that the heart of every person in this room would not be a heart of begrudgingly walking away from our former lives but a heart to passionately run towards you and so do we repent do we turn yes but we turn because of what we're turning to not the futility of what we're turning from And God, I pray for every person in here who today, as they turn towards you, Jesus, for their hope, this is the first time that they have turned to you. Not maybe the first time they've prayed you or the first time they've thought you or the first time that they've said something about you, but their heart's posture is that for the very first time, they give everything to you because they realize when you died, when you took the weight, when you took the sin, when you took the shame, when you bridged the gap that our sinfulness should have considered us rebellion and alienated from you for all of eternity, you had a plan. Before the foundation of the world, you had a plan. Before you declared the consequence, you declared deliverance. You are our restitution, Jesus. You are our reconciliation, Jesus. You are our salvation, Jesus. And we give everything for you. And if that's you and this is your first time, I just want you to pray this. Pray this along with me. You just say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. And I know it. Thank you that you knew it too. And you never expected me to be perfect. I trust 
I believe that when you died, your death covers my sin. That God, I am forgiven and I am family. So Jesus, I give you my life. Come be my Lord and be my Savior. And if it's your first time praying that, you know it has nothing to do with the specificity of your prayer, but simply the posture of your heart. And you are now forgiven. Family. And so God, I pray for all of us that the holiness in our church would rise, that people would see the way that we live, not so that they see us, but so that they see you through us. And I pray for anybody in here who there's still hesitancy is that they have not seen Christians actually ever live like Christians, that you would put a group around them, people around them, that they would see you, know you, trust you, because they see a group of people who actually live like they're running after you. I pray that we would turn from our sinful tendencies and patterns and run to you, King Jesus. And as we take this communion, as we take a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup, God, would you simply remind us of your overwhelming love that we get you we get you, God. You are the treasure that is so much greater than anything else. And I pray that we would experience your love today. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.